Jeff's Midweek Bible Study, a verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible with Pastor Jeff Lassane. We hope this podcast encourages your faith, and now, here's Pastor Jeff. Well, greetings to everyone, and welcome to the Bible Study Podcast. Hey, we're back in the Gospel of Mark, coming now to Chapter 8. I trust that Mark's gospel has been ministering to you through this series of studies, and I hope that we never take these gospel studies for granted. Pastor John MacArthur shares the story of a blind girl in France some years ago who had obtained a Braille copy of Mark's gospel. She read it over and over and over again until her fingertips became so calloused she couldn't distinguish the symbols any longer. Feeling distraught, she held her braille copy of Mark up to kiss it, and crying, she said, Farewell, sweet word of my Savior. Suddenly, she realized that she could distinguish the braille symbols with her lips even better than with her fingers, and so her beloved copy of Mark was now her treasured possession once again. What does God's word mean to us? I agree with the psalmist in verse 162 of Psalm 119 when he wrote, I rejoice at your word as one who finds great treasure. If you were with us for our previous study in Mark 7, Jesus had ministered to a couple of Gentiles outside of Israel's borders in different Gentile territories. First off, in the region of Tyre and Sidon, Jesus cast the demon out of a young girl at the pleading of her Syrophoenician mother. Then afterwards, Jesus and the disciples traveled to the Decapolis, where Jesus healed a man who was deaf and unable to speak. During that time, Jesus was using those visits in Gentile territories to train and prepare his disciples for their gospel ministry that would follow his death, resurrection, and ascension. They needed to see firsthand that salvation would also be for the Gentiles along with the Jews. And so now that brings us to Mark chapter 8. Jesus is still in the area of the Decapolis, and now we read these words picking up in verse 1. In those days, the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their own houses, they will faint or collapse on the way, for some of them have come a long distance. Then his disciples answered him, How can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? Jesus asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves and gave thanks, broke them, and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the multitude. They also had a few small fish, and having blessed them, Jesus said to set them also before them. So they ate, and they were filled, and they took up seven large baskets of leftover fragments. Now those who had eaten were about 4,000, and Jesus sent them away and immediately got into the boat with his disciples and came to the region of Dalmanutha. I'm going to title this message, Deja Vu All Over Again. 
which some of you might recognize as a famous quote by baseball legend Yogi Berra. Berra had a wonderful and witty way of seeming to mix up his words, which produced funny, I guess, oxymoron-type statements, which I think sometimes were actually insightful. They came to be known as yogiisms, and uh, here are some of my favorite examples. When he was asked about eating at a certain New York restaurant, Yogi said, no one goes there anymore, it's too crowded. On directions for traveling, he said, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. When asked what time it was, he replied, you mean right now? When asked about his approach to baseball, he said, baseball is 90% mental and the other half is physical. On the subject of death, he said, you should go to other people's funerals, otherwise they won't go to yours. And perhaps his most famous phrase, it ain't over till it's over. Even when he was asked about his funny way of speaking and his funny phrases, he responded, I didn't really say everything that I said. And when asked about how sometimes events seem to repeat themselves, Yogi said, it's like deja vu all over again. Well, for the casual reader, or maybe the newer believer, the first thought might be, as you read or hear this passage, that we just read this. It sounds awfully familiar. In fact, didn't we just read about this a couple of chapters ago? Maybe Pastor Jeff is getting senile and he's rereading the same story in Mark. Some Bible critics have even suggested that this is the same story being retold, but with a few different details and therefore is a contradiction. Well, let me assure you, it is not a contradiction, but rather two similar and yet separate events. All we need to do is compare the two accounts side by side and the differences become clear. And if it isn't evident enough then, we'll also see when we get to verses 19 and 20 that Jesus himself describes them as two separate events. It's worth noting that not only are these two events in the gospel similar, they are both similar to an Old Testament event involving the prophet Elisha. Elisha not only ministered on behalf of the Lord as a prophet of God, he was also training others in what would have been sort of a school of the prophets. One day someone came and presented Elisha with some loaves of bread to help feed him and the other prophets. So Elisha instructed his servant Gehazi to feed the 100 prophets with that donated bread. But like the New Testament disciples, Gehazi pointed out the obvious— that it wasn't nearly enough food to feed so many hungry men. But Elisha assured Gehazi that not only would everyone have plenty to eat, there would also be leftovers. And so it happened just as Elisha described. Bread is a very significant symbol throughout the pages of Scripture. After God rescued his people and set them free from slavery in Egypt, he fed them for 40 years in the wilderness with manna or bread from heaven. Then in addition to the three similar and yet separate times that large groups were fed with small amounts of bread that had been miraculously multiplied, we also remember Jesus being tempted in the wilderness at the start of his public ministry. You'll recall the first temptation of the devil was to entice Jesus to use his divine powers to turn rocks into bread in order to satisfy his own hunger. But Jesus refused, quoting the scripture which says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. 
When the multitudes wanted Jesus to continue providing them with more bread, we read in John 6, he announced to them that he is the bread of life, which can can sustain us spiritually and eternally. And when Jesus instituted communion in the upper room shortly before his death, he took the loaf of bread from the table and used it to symbolize his body, which was given sacrificially for us on the cross. And just as significantly, when the disciples asked Jesus to teach them how to pray, he responded with what we now call the Lord's Prayer, which included him saying, give us this day our daily bread. Just as the Israelites needed to depend upon God for their daily provision of bread from heaven, so you and I must depend upon the Lord daily for all of our needs. Hey, listen to what Pastor Alistair Begg wrote about this. It's a great quote. He said, Jesus was underscoring a timeless reality, that in every age God teaches his people to trust not in the provision itself, which leaves us longing for more, but to trust in the provider who satisfies our every need. Well, that was certainly a part of what Jesus was teaching his disciples and is teaching us as well in these passages and here in these two miracles of feeding the multitudes. This is now the 14th miracle that Mark has recorded in his gospel account. And so then in verse 1, Mark writes, In those days... And as we learn from chapter 7, those days again refers to Jesus and his disciples traveling in the area of the Decapolis. That's a Gentile area east of the Jordan River. So today that would be the country of Jordan. Decapolis means 10 cities, and it actually described a region of 10 Gentile cities that had strong uh, Greek influence. Now, as these first verses open up, we read some startling things. Not only would this crowd have been predominantly Gentile, but they had been with Jesus for three days without food. Now think about that. These were pagans and idol worshipers, and yet as they were listening to the teaching of Jesus, they remained with him for three days, really without thought of food. The things that Jesus was sharing with them had impacted their hearts profoundly to the point that they were willing to go hungry and sleep on the ground. And if there's any doubt about their hunger, Jesus points out in verse 3 that if they were to leave without eating, they would faint or collapse along the way. As a result of all this, Jesus tells his disciples, I have compassion on the multitudes. Now, what a beautiful statement that is from Jesus, who's God walking among them in the flesh. And so if you're taking notes, I'd like to share four points from our passage And we'll start right here with the compassion of Jesus. It's worth noting that we read about Jesus having compassion on different occasions in the four Gospels, but check this out. This is the only instance in which Jesus said, first person singular, I feel compassion. And that then makes this a unique statement. I feel or have compassion is three words in English, but just one word in the Greek, a Greek word that I'm unable to pronounce, and it refers to deep-seated, heartfelt emotion coming from within. Along the same lines, in the nearly 90 chapters of the four Gospels, there's only one time when Jesus tells us about his own heart. That's in Matthew 11:29, when Jesus extends a public invitation for people to come to him. You remember that? And he says, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Again, it's the only place in the Gospels where Jesus offers personal insight into his own heart. 
I am gentle and lowly in heart. Being gentle describes Jesus being meek and kind and patient, while being lonely describes his humility. And here now from the same heart, Jesus looks out amongst a vast multitude of hungry and weary people, and he declares, I have compassion on the multitudes. From the divine heart of gentleness and humility, compassion flows. And the wonderful fact is that Jesus has the same compassion on us individually. In the Gospels, while we find him frequently speaking to the crowds, we also find him ministering one-on-one to a variety of hurting people, from the woman at the well, to the man with struggling faith who had a demon-possessed son, to the woman caught in adultery. We find Jesus extending compassion to many individuals in addition to the multitudes. Jesus knew that compassion would resolve more sins than condemnation. Even as Jesus was dying on the cross, atoning for our sins, he was extending acts of compassion. Amazing. First, he prayed to the Father and asked that those who were crucifying him might be forgiven because they didn't fully comprehend what they were doing. Secondly, he forgave the sins and gave salvation to one of the criminals being crucified next to him. And thirdly, he entrusted the care of his mother to the disciple John to make sure that all of her needs would be taken care of after his death and departure. Lamentations 3.23 reminds us that the Lord's compassions are new every morning. And once again, Jesus' compassion for those Gentiles was an important preparation for those future apostles who would take the gospel to the whole world to both Jews and Gentiles. It's also in itself a picture of the gospel because all of those pagan idol worshipers were unworthy of God's grace and compassion. And that's the good news of the gospel, that God so loved the whole undeserving world that he gave his only son as the Savior to all who would believe and receive. I would also point out that the Jewish crowd that Jesus fed in the feeding of the 5,000 ended up rejecting Jesus shortly afterwards when he told them that he was the true bread of life sent down from heaven. In contrast, we read that this Gentile crowd had remained with Jesus for three days before he ever even fed them. The two familiar and similar stories of the multitudes being fed is a picture of God going to the Jew first and then after their rejection to the Gentiles. Going back to the fact that these people remained with Jesus for three days going without food or shelter should bring some conviction to our hearts as believers. How many of us struggle to maintain focus in our morning devotions or prayer time for just three minutes? And how many Christians struggle getting to church for three Sundays in a row? Now, obviously, we're not referring to believers with legitimate challenges or limitations. I'm referring to the majority of us who are without excuse. Whatever obstacles interfere with our daily devotional time with God or getting to church to spend time and worship with our fellow believers, we need to deal with those obstacles. We need to prioritize our relationship with Christ and eliminate whatever might come between us and God. As Jesus reminded us in Matthew 6.33, we're to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all the other things we have need of will be added unto us. Back here in our story, the response of the disciples to Jesus seems even more remarkable than the perseverance of that Gentile crowd. 
In verse four, when Jesus said, I have compassion on them, their reply to Jesus was, how can we satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? Their words seem mystifying because Jesus had recently fed another large crowd of people. Remember, he multiplied two fish and five pieces of bread. So had they actually forgotten that? I don't think so. I wouldn't think so. They may have been slow learners, but they weren't stupid. They wouldn't literally forget what Jesus had just done before. And it's worth noting, look, that Jesus didn't rebuke them for their response, either here or in Matthew's parallel account of the same story. So I think it's fair to perhaps assume that they were simply not sure about what Jesus was going to do. He said, I have compassion on the crowd, and if I just let them go, basically without eating, they're going to collapse along the way. And so they just didn't know what Jesus was about to do for certain. Was he going to feed the multitude miraculously as he had done before? Or perhaps since these were Gentiles, in contrast to the other crowd being Jews, would he perhaps handle this situation differently? All in all, I believe the disciples were certainly were simply, excuse me, uncertain as to how Jesus was going to proceed. And so they responded, how can we, or perhaps how should we, satisfy these people with bread in the wilderness? Either way, listen, Jesus didn't scold them, and it's probably best that we don't either. When Jesus asked the disciples how many loaves of bread they had, and then they were instructed to have the people sit down on the ground, well, it was like deja vu all over again. However, while it turned out to be quite similar to the previous miracle in the feeding, there were clear differences. And so I guess this is as good a time as any to just take a moment to point out those differences. In the first feeding, it was 5,000 men plus women and children. Here in the second feeding, it's 4,000, and then it's in Matthew's parallel account, Matthew 15, that he tells us that it also did not include the women and the children that were there. Here it was um, Gentiles in the second feeding. In the first feeding, it was Jews. In the first feeding, it took place near Bethsaida. Here now, this second feeding takes place in the Decapolis. The first feeding was recorded in all four Gospels. This second feeding is recorded in two Gospels. In the first feeding, Jesus multiplied two fish and five loaves. Here now in the second feeding, Jesus multiplied seven loaves and a few small fish. In the first feeding, they were told to sit down on the grass, and here they're to sit down on the ground. In the first feeding, uh, Jesus fed the people at the end of that first day. Here in the second feeding, people were fed after three days. And finally, in the first feeding, we read that there were 12 baskets of leftovers. And the word for baskets in the Greek is kind of a handheld basket, like a little uh, bread basket. Here now in the second feeding, it's seven baskets instead of 12. And the word for baskets actually gives us the word hamper. Uh, it's used in Acts 9.25 when um, Paul needed to escape Damascus and they lowered him um, over the wall on the outside inside of a basket, enough big enough for him to fit into. That's the word that's used here. So these were not little to-go boxes from a local Chinese restaurant. These were big hampers, seven of them full of leftovers. This then brings us to our second point, the provision of Jesus. We've seen the compassion of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus, 
has now led to the provision of Jesus. In answer to the question of the disciples, how can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? The answer is Jesus. Today, the questions might be along the lines of, how can I find another job after losing my last one? Or how can I help my prodigal child return to the Lord? Or how can I find hope and direction for my troubled marriage? Well, whatever the question might be, the answer is found in the same person, Jesus. He is our provider, our helper, and our savior. Everything we need is found in Jesus. When we trust Jesus and wait on Jesus and pray to Jesus and obey his word, we find whatever it is we need in him. As I alluded to earlier, Jesus said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That invitation and promise is not only for salvation, but for navigating life here on earth until we arrive safely in heaven. Well, let's return to our reading now. Let's go back to the passage and let's pick up in verse 11, please. Then the Pharisees came out and began to dispute with Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven. They were testing him. But he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. And he left them and getting into the boat again, departed to the other side. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread and they did not have more than one loaf with them in the boat. Then Jesus charged them saying, take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And the disciples reasoned among themselves saying, is it because we have no bread? But Jesus being aware of it said to them, why do you reason because you have no bread? Did you not yet perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of fragments did you take up? They said to him, 12. Also, when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said, seven. So he said to them, how is it then that you do not understand? Well, immediately after feeding those people, those Gentiles in the Decapolis, we read in verse 10 that they left and arrived in the region of Dalmanutha. This is the only reference, by the way, to this Galilean town in the Bible. And I've actually read where some commentators said they have absolutely no idea where this was. Well, I, I think we can do a little better than that. Let's not forget that Matthew has a parallel account of this passage. And at the end of Matthew 15, he records that they sailed to Magdala. Magdala is a small village not far from Capernaum, and I've been there several times. This is the village of Mary Magdalene, whose name means Mary from Magdala. So wherever Dalmanutha was, it was very close to Magdala, probably between Capernaum and Magdala. When the water level of the Galilee Lake got pretty low about 12 years ago, archaeologists discovered a small harbor underneath the water was right between Magdala and Capernaum, and they believe that it was the harbor that belonged to the village of Dalmanutha. It's the same area where the Jesus boat was discovered in 1986, so hey, that first century boat had probably docked at that harbor. Therefore, Capernaum, 
Dalmanutha and Magdala were all in close proximity there along the shore of Galilee. Well, Jesus then is back in Galilee. He's back in Jewish territory. He's in the last stages of his Galilean ministry. Here close to Capernaum, where the religious leaders had attacked Jesus before, they're back to attack him again. They were looking for him, and they had been waiting for him. And this brings us to our third point, the opposition to Jesus. Notice some of the key words here in verse 11 about their agenda. They began to dispute with him. They were seeking a sign, and they were testing him. The word for dispute or debate in verse 11 uh, describes hostility and harassment. You know, as a pastor, I have found that you can tell a lot about a person that you've never met before just by how they approach you and ask a question. In my experience, people usually tend, you know, these are church people or Christians, so in my experience, people usually tend to be humble, genuine, they're searching with their questions. But there even in the church have been times when some people can walk up and they're aggressive and they're arrogant and they're even hostile in the way they ask their questions. Well, the religious leaders were almost always hostile because they hated how so many people were following Jesus. They hated his miracles. They hated his message. They hated how he ignored and rebuffed their man-made traditions. And most of all, they hated that his light exposed their darkness. On this occasion, notice they wanted a sign from heaven. Notice the word carefully, the wording carefully. Jesus had done hundreds of miracles or signs like healing diseases and casting out demons, even raising the dead. But those were earthly signs, if you will, and they had already accused Jesus of doing his earthly miracles in the power of Beelzebub or Satan. The Jews also had a belief that while demons could perform or imitate earthly miracles, only God could do heavenly miracles. So, for example, demons could imitate the earthly miracles of Moses in Pharaoh's court, just like Pharaoh's two magicians did in Exodus. But only God could do heavenly miracles, like Joshua calling for the sun to stand still in the book of Judges, or Elijah calling fire down from heaven at Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 5. Well, 1 Kings (laughs) chapter 18 or 19, somewhere along there. Sorry about that. So now they were demanding a sign from heaven. Their hearts were hard and their eyes were blind. In verse 12, Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit. In his humanity, Jesus was expressing exasperation with these hostile religious leaders. He was growing weary of their continuous attempts to um, undermine the truth and the gospel message. In Matthew's gospel, we read that those religious leaders were made up of both Pharisees and Sadducees. And as some of you probably recognize, those two groups were actually opposed to each other on doctrinal grounds. They did not get along. But notice when it came to attacking Jesus, they were all on the same page. Now, one ray of sunshine in all this is that there were some religious leaders from these groups that were exceptions, men like Nicodemus, who came to speak with Jesus at night in John chapter 3, and Joseph of Arimathea. Both men became disciples of Jesus at a later point, and both men were used by God in taking care of Christ's body for burial after the resurrection. 
But these hard-hearted religious leaders refused to believe and more miracles would not make any difference as Jesus knew. Many of us have heard of the French writer and philosopher, his name was Voltaire. He's been called an atheist, he's been called an agnostic, but what he was was outspoken against the Bible and religion. At one point, Voltaire made this statement, even if a miracle should be produced in the open marketplace before a thousand sober witnesses, I would rather mistrust my senses than admit that there was a miracle. Man, doesn't that sound like a lot of those unsaved religious leaders? Woody Allen, the actor-director, was quoted as saying, If God could give me a clear sign, I would believe, like making a large deposit in my name at a Swiss bank. Well, that might make us chuckle, but in the end, it still all boils down to unbelief. As Jesus and the disciples got back in the boat to leave, the disciples had forgotten to take enough bread for all of them to eat. In the meantime, after that confrontation with the religious leaders, Jesus saw a teaching opportunity for his guys. And so our fourth point then is the instruction of Jesus. Jesus warned the disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, earlier I had said the disciples were not stupid, but I also said they were slow learners, and we see that playing out here. When Jesus warned them about the leaven of those religious leaders, they thought he was chiding them for not bringing enough bread to eat in the boat. So Jesus reminded them of how he had fed the 5,000 with plenty left over to eat, as well as feeding the 4,000 with plenty left over to eat. His point was they didn't need to worry about bread or anything else. Jesus was able to provide everything that they needed. And oh, by the way, on a side note, Jesus is also making a clear distinction between the two different feedings, the 4,000 and the 5,000, again, demonstrating that they were two separate feedings or different miracles. When Jesus spoke to them about leaven, he wasn't talking about the leaven of baking bread, but the permeating influence of the false doctrines of those religious leaders, as well as their hypocrisy. And what is the leaven of Herod? Well, we remember it was his immorality. Remember John the Baptist had publicly denounced Herod for stealing his brother's wife and eventually Uh, the actions uh, and faithfulness of John the Baptist led to his execution. So Jesus is warning his disciples to beware of all of that, the false doctrine and and hypocrisy of the religious leaders and the immorality of men like Herod. Matthew's gospel adds the, the helpful and hopeful closing statement. Then the disciples understood that Jesus did not tell them to be aware of the leaven of bread, but rather of the doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So they got it. Once again, before we're too hard on those disciples, we need to remind ourselves of how many times God has had to repeat something to us before we finally get it. Either we forget what we've learned previously, or else we completely miss the point of what the Lord is trying to teach us. So God keeps repeating the same things to help us to learn and remember. In closing, the compassionate example of our Lord Jesus reminds us that he desires for us to have compassion on others. As Paul wrote in Ephesians 4.32, be compassionate and kind to one another. And while we appreciate the miraculous accounts of the bread and the fish, the deeper meaning of all this is that Jesus is the bread of life given to us by God from heaven. 
By dying on the cross and rising again from the dead, Jesus offers us eternal life with him in heaven. Do you believe this by faith and have you turned from your sins and trusted Jesus as your Savior? Turn to him now as the days are getting very dark and his return is coming very soon. In Jesus' name, amen.